Uh, if, you're, if you haven't been with us, what we're doing as we're coming into the sermon time of the worship service, we're in a series and we're studying the book of Hebrews. This is part of the New Testament, and uh, I'm just going to kind of do a little review here. We don't know who wrote it. There have been some really educated guesses, but we're not sure about who wrote it. It seems to be written to a group of readers who uh, are from a Jewish background. That's why it's called Hebrews. And they've been exposed to what we call the gospel. They have, they've heard about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And uh, professed faith, but now there's at least a critical mass of them that are thinking about returning to Judaism. And so this, and, and I, even as I say letter, we're not even sure that this is a letter. It's hard to even say what genre this book is. It's like a letter. It's like a sermon. I've seen some New Testament really smart people say it's a sermon letter. So maybe I'll call it that, a sermon letter. Uh, But this sermon letter just keeps pounding on this one theme, and that is Jesus is greater than everything and everyone, and you have him or you do not. So that's, that's the theme that we're continuing in, and we're going to be in Hebrews 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. Uh, well, the Halloween decorations in my neighborhood went up about five weeks in advance of Halloween. And it's really weird. Like, I, I grew up, I feel like I grew up with primitive Halloween. It was just like a bad mask, elastic string, stapled, probably breaks after you buy it, uh, before you wear it. And um, now there's yard decorations. There's like cemeteries and inflatables and animatronics. And it's just, it's kind of, you know, light, lighting effects. Let me ask this. All right, so for some of the young, the young people, uh, to be formal. Now, for some of you who plan on doing Halloween, dressing up, all right, boys and girls, in your neighborhood, have you seen this? Have you seen all the big, like, yard decorations? Have you seen where people make their yard look like a cemetery, and there's bones and, and uh, like, cem- like, headstones? Have you seen that? All right, on the headstones, have you seen any that say R.I.P.? And when I was little, I didn't know what that meant. I thought there must have been a lot of people named Rip that died in a prior time. And, and if, now, if you're the older brother or sister, don't give it away if you know. But, but do you know what RIP stands for? What does it stand for? Rest in peace. That's it. Go to the head of the class. Rest in peace. That's exactly right. Uh, and actually that used to be put on headstones I guess if they didn't have much room or they just wanted to save on space they put R.I.P. rest in peace and I don't think all people that had that kind of headstone were Christians but it was a very Christian sentiment I was uh, a few weeks ago in in an old churchyard, an old church in our county, it's Fairview Presbyterian Church in Fountain Inn I just walked around this churchyard And I saw, I think, the oldest graves I've seen in Greenville County, people born in the 1700s, buried around 1810, 1820. And uh, as you looked around at these different headstones, one verse that you would see on several headstones, and this uh, maybe this is still common, I don't know, but you'd see this verse from Revelation 14 that says, uh, Blessed are are those who die in the Lord, uh, for they now rest. And their deeds will follow them. But now they're resting. Uh, that is something that the, that the promise of that begins in the Old Testament. That there's a rest that awaits the people of God. And, and that this is important. When I say the people of God, don't just hear that as a synonym for human being. 
Now, we are all created by God, and we are all each other's neighbors, but the people of God are people that God has brought into relationship with Himself. That for those people, there's this rest waiting. And what the writer is saying here in this passage is, I want you to have that rest. But he's also giving a very stark warning. And I said this last week, but I want to say this again. As we look at Hebrews, you've got to get used to two things being just crammed right up beside each other. Like, I really like you, the writer to the readers. I like you. We'll call them brothers. He'll say we about things. And I'm warning you. It's not the warning of someone who's angry at them. It's, it's an affectionate warning to say, I don't want you to miss that rest. And some people miss it. And he's even going to give the example of there were people in the Old Testament who heard the gospel in the Old Testament. They heard it and they ignored it and they missed the rest. And I don't want that to happen to you. Now, let me say one more thing. Uh, this came up last week. But, you know, we're just jumping into this thing that was written as one piece. Last week, we looked at how the writer brings up this psalm. It's Psalm 95, and his readers would have known that psalm. And that psalm refers back to when the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, no grocery stores, no, you know, plumbing, and they need water, and they need food, and they start grumbling, and they complain to God And God says, they were testing me. And in that psalm, it says, look, don't do what they did. Because they hardened their heart against God. And they didn't listen to him. And God said, you will not enter my rest. And that phrase, enter my rest, is all through this passage. So he's still thinking about that psalm and saying, cautionary tale, I don't want this to happen to you. So let's pick up there. All right, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, those Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul 
and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we long for rest. We love the thought of rest. We talk about wanting rest. And we are the very people who harden our hearts and don't listen to you offering us rest. And even as we're here this morning, we're tired. We're tired from work. We're tired from disappointments. We're tired from addictions. Tired from disorders. We're tired of strife in our families. We're tired of the news, tired from the news. And so we pray that any obstacle that gets in the way now from hearing you and worshiping, that you would take that obstacle away. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a statistic uh, a day or two ago that amazed me. I've heard similar ones, but I had not heard this particular one. The second leading cause of death for individuals 15 to 34 years old. This is the second leading cause nationally, and it's the second leading cause in South Carolina. Of individuals 15 to 34 is suicide. I did not know that. I knew there's too much of it, but I didn't know it was that much. That uh, it's twice... It occurs at a level twice that of homicide. Now, I, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm going where angels fear to tread because please don't hear me as suggesting that there is some one, you know, like one silver bullet uh, reason for suicide or answer to suicide. Uh, suicide can come from everything from upbringing to chronic pain to addiction to brain chemistry, to life circumstances, to mental illness. To, it just can be the gamut. So there's no one-size-fits-all understanding of it. Please hear me saying that. But here's the reality, and it was interesting. And when I was hearing this report of a woman whose, whose son committed suicide and who really has begun to study it and try to address it and advocate for help, she, she just was talking about what, what does somebody who's contemplating suicide, what does he or she feel? And it's the feeling that the thought of feeling this way on and on and on is unbearable. It is better to die than to continue feeling this. Now again, don't hear me as saying, wow, if people just understood Hebrews 4, there'd be no suicide. But I'm saying this, that something that Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, has offered the people of God is to say, you will suffer in this life. This world is broken. And we are fallen. It's not just that the world is fallen, we are fallen. The creation is broken. But there is a rest that God has for His people. It's not mythic. It's not pretend. It's not a state of mind. And by the way, it's not just ethereal. It is a physical, although it's your soul as well, real, actual, experienced rest. 
but it's not an entitlement. So how do you enter that rest? It's interesting that uh, it speaks about rest like it's, a, like it's a location that you step into. How do you enter that rest? Uh, we lost a, a, a theologian earlier this year named R.C. Sproul, and I once heard him say that he, uh, he went through some evangelism training, and this is when he was a you know, doctorate, had a doctorate in theology, but he went through this evangelism training, how do you share your faith with somebody? And he learned this question to, to ask somebody, uh, if you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And he said he thought, you know, I've never asked my son that. He had, he had a young son, so he put his son up on his lap and he said, hey, son, if you were to die and you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And his son said, because I'm dead. This, this, would be the, the, this would be the theological position of justification by death, which the New Testament does not teach, but it's commonly held. So, so the question is, how, how do you enter that rest? So let's look at this. Let's look at this. And I, I want to think in terms of this is a particular kind of rest that the passage is talking about. So let's look at two things. The nature of this rest, what kind is it, what does it mean, and the urgency of rest. How high are the stakes? The nature of this rest and the urgency of this rest. All right, first off, the nature of it. And here's the first thing I want to say about that. It's a kind of rest in which the passage says it's God's rest. It's the rest that God does. Now, this passage says that at least four times. Let me show you a couple of places. Look in verse 4. About halfway through, it quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and it says... And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's talking about six days of creation. And then he rests on the seventh day. And then verse 5. And again in this passage, that's that Psalm 95, that God said, they shall not enter my rest. It's my rest. It's God's rest. Look in verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, do, do we know what that means? This is going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Six days of creation. And then on the seventh day, it says God rests. What does that mean? That God rests. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have limitations. Uh, God doesn't experience fatigue. It's not like he just went, okay, the planets, that took that out of me. Uh, it says he rests on the seventh day. What does that mean? And actually, if you read Genesis, it tells you. He looked at everything he had made, and it's very good, the order of it, the beauty of it, the artistry. He looks at it, and it's very good. So he stops working, but he looks at the finished work, and he enjoys it. Now, that is God's rest. God is still active. God is still doing things. But he still rests as he does that. That's the rest, all right? Now, here's the second thing the passage is saying. You can enter this rest. Now, this is where I need you to kind of put your, like, as your teacher would say, your thinking cap on. If God's rest is something that goes all the way back, we learn about it going all the way back to Genesis, that means it's older than Israel, it's older than Israelites. It's bigger than Israel and Israelites. And for the Israelites that came out of Egypt, 
and went through the wilderness, for them, they would think, ah, rest. Rest is to go into the promised land. Well, the people that received Psalm 95, the one that says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, be warned. They didn't enter God's rest. You need to enter God's rest. The people who first received that psalm, they were in the promised land. That means even that psalm is giving you a clue that the real rest that we need and we anticipate, it's bigger than Israel, it's bigger than the promised land, it's something much bigger and more ultimate. So how do you enter it? Uh, I keep saying enter the rest, enter the rest. What determines entrance? Now look in verse 6, because you've got to be careful here. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter, why? Because of disobedience. Now what that can sound like is, okay, if you don't obey enough, you don't go in. They disobeyed, they didn't get in. If you don't obey enough, you're not going to get in. Is that what the Bible says? That you've got, to, you've got to make a big enough pile of obedience and good works that you get in that rest. Go back to verse 2. Very important. It says, the Israelites heard good news. But then it says, the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And in case you missed it, then verse 3 makes it crystal clear. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now think about what that means. What is it to believe, and how is that like God's rest? Remember what we said? God's rest is God looking at the work He did and stopping that work and enjoying what is accomplished and the beauty of it. How do people like you and I do that? Because you might be thinking, I I don't have any finished work I can stare at. I never finished my work. But there's one who did. That the Son of God, who is the main character of the book of Hebrews, He came and He lived the life of goodness that you and I don't live. And this huge theme that we're going to be diving into is that He is our great high priest. He's the one that takes care of of all the disobedience, all the sin, all the problems, all the failures of us in God's presence and takes care of it once and for all. Well, the Son of God came and He was our great high priest. And right before He died on that cross, guess what He says? It is finished. Everything I'm doing on behalf of my people as their priest, it is finished. And He dies And he is risen from the dead. And he ascends to the Father. He takes everything he accomplished for us to the Father. And he sits down at the Father's right hand to say, it is finished. You know what faith is? Is to look at that. And to know that it's done. And that was done for me. And I can't add to it. And I can't subtract. And it's just right. That's how you enter. And when you start doing that, you're not in heaven, but you're starting to participate in God's rest as you look at the finished, beautiful work that's done for me and for all who believe. And along those lines, let me just say this. Uh, 
I have, I have heard versions of this in sermons. I've heard versions of this in Bible studies. I've read versions of this in books and articles and blogs. And it's versions of, hey, look, it's all well and good to talk about what we believe, but look, we're called to do things. God's people are called to do things. The Bible calls us to action. There's a world out there that's hurting. Look, we're to be about doing. Be careful. And what I mean by that is there is a world of things to do. Jesus talked about, hey, when you visit the prisoner, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you do that for the least of these, you do it for me. And some of you are doing those things right now. There's plenty to do that we're called to do. But be careful of blasting past faith like, yeah, you got to believe. Now it's time to do the real stuff. Belief is everything. Doing is a, just a fruit of the believing. And let me hide behind Jesus on this. The, the, look in the Gospel of John chapter 6. And have you ever thought, I wish I could have 10 minutes with Jesus and just ask him some of these things that I really want answers to. And that would be tough to determine what you, you would ask him. But in John chapter 6, I think a group of people got one that I would like to ask. They asked, what do you want us to do? Like there's all these commands that God gives. What's the main stuff we're supposed to be working on? John chapter 6. What are the works that God requires us to do? You know what Jesus says to that question? He had an opening that you could drive an 18-wheeler through to say, feed the poor, clothe the naked, do social justice. I mean, all the things that God's people are to do. But what was his answer? The work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. John 6, 29. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you are you? Blasting, even maybe thinking that you're being biblical, are you blasting past that God's people are God's people and they have what they have through faith? And that faith ultimately is how you enter the rest to come that we say we want. Now, that's the nature of the rest. What about the urgency of the rest? And let me just underscore this. This is a book that where the writer likes the people that he's writing to. And he warns. And they're not pretend warnings. They're real warnings. So you're going to hear that. The urgency of the rest. Let me say it negatively and positively because the writer seems to do that. Here's the negative. Verse 1. And this doesn't come out in English, but the first Greek word of verse 1 it says, let us fear. Let us be afraid. Here's how it comes out in English. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, promise is there, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. But let me, do you have anything in your life where maybe something almost happened, something bad, and it didn't? So we're glad it didn't. But sometimes when you remember what almost happened or what could have happened, you still kind of go. Uh, I told this story at the 830 service, and I probably shouldn't have because my mom was in the back. But when I was younger, I, I went across the street to this convenience store with my friend. And when we were coming back, we we're going to cross Ridgewood Road again. And I'm like, I'm, you know, nine or ten years old. I'm just 
probably drinking an icy or something like that. And I step out to cross the street, and my friend Rance grabbed the back of my shirt, and a car went by. Every once in a while, I'll think of that, and I'll tell somebody, but about every sixth or seventh telling, I'll just feel this chill go down. I could have been killed if Rance had not grabbed my shirt and pulled me back. It still bothers me. That's... Essentially what the writer is saying is the the stakes are so high that you would live your life, this hard life that we live, you know, this hard, heavy, sometimes crushing life, what it does to your body and your feelings and your thinking and your willpower, that you would go through all that, this world with all the bad news in it, and you would get to the end, and rather than walk into rest for body and soul, instead, you would continue forever in your fallen state. And the deterioration of your body and your soul would just spiral now forever. That there's an appropriate chill that should send down your spine. Let us fear that that would happen to any of us. And by the way, Did you notice in verses 2 and 6 that it says that what the Israelites heard and ignored in the wilderness was the gospel? Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. Verse uh, 6, those who formerly uh, received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Uh, The people who are most culpable at the judgment are not those who never heard. The people who are most culpable are those who heard the gospel, the good news that's really good and ignored it. And I'm going to say something, and you may think that this may sound like I have gone back to the 1700s and I have a powdered wig on, but I'll still say this for biblical reasons, that I'm not so much saying this to you if this is your first or second time to come, but if you've been coming here for some time, I want you to know that your blood is not on my hands, nor Adam's, nor Jonathan's. And I'm not saying that because we're such great preachers or because we preach the gospel perfectly, but the good news of Jesus Christ And redemption is preached here purposefully over and over and over. Those who hear it and hear it and hear it and harden their hearts are most culpable. Don't let that be you. Because it was those Israelites. They saw the miracles and they knew God was real and they hardened their heart. So fear not entering. But let's state it positively. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, if believing in Jesus over a lifetime and it's like it leaks out of us and I forget the gospel or I just, I don't really want Jesus, I just want more pay, or to feel better, or more happiness, or for my family to get along, or whatever. Let us strive to believe the good news 
and walk in that and walk alongside each other until we enter that rest. Now, that makes sense, but then all of a sudden it's like the writer just shifts gears and kind of says, now, let's talk about the B-I-B-L-E. Look in verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then he kind of says, oh, and by the way, here's God. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Did, Did that seem jarring to you? There's a rest that awaits the people of God. Here's what the Bible is, and here's who God is. And the longer I stared at this, it just seemed to me that this, is, this was brilliant. All right, let's go back to the intro. To whom is the writer writing? People thinking about returning to Judaism. Go back to the sacrificial system. Go back to the temple. Go back to keeping Torah, feasts, festivals, all that and not really bank everything on Jesus. And here's what the writer is saying. God knows our whole heart. He knows every secret that our friends and family don't know about us. And one way you can see that he knows that is his word, when you engage it, will pierce you. You know, like you'll have enough people tell you that you're really nice that you start to believe your own press. You kind of feel like, I am nice. And there's a lot of mean people in this world who should be nice like me. And then you open God's Word and you see what truly loving people involves. (laughs) Like, to give of yourself and to sacrifice for another whether or not that person ever tells his or her friends so that you get credit for it. Whether or not it ever builds your personal PR campaign. There is no PR campaign in love. When you read that, it should cut you. Because here's the thing. If if you're just going to go off on the lifelong project of, I am going to be a good person. My parents taught me to be a good person, I'm going to be a good person. That's going to push you toward one of two things. You're either going to be self-righteous, I am a good person, or you'll despair. Because in moments of honesty, you'll know that you don't even live up to your own standards. But here's the amazing thing about the Word of God. It comes to you and it says, all right, the bad news is even worse than you thought. You're even more sinful than you thought. You're more loveless. You're more selfish. You're more lustful. You're more self-absorbed. Now, here's the good news. That's who Jesus came for. You thought you were bad? Hey, you're worse than you thought you were. But Jesus didn't come for little sinners. He came for big sinners. Bank everything on Him. And friends, that, that is real. The Bible doesn't say it's mythic or metaphor. It's not soul sleep. It's the hope and the promise that our bodies and our souls will rest and the shoe won't drop. I struggle with sleep and I continue to struggle with sleep and you tell me about your struggles with sleep. It's like sometimes even when you actually have good sleep, then something sabotages it. 
It's like I was hitting deep REM sleep, and then there was a noise, or someone needed something, or a door slammed. But what if there is a rest for soul and body that can never be sabotaged? And the writer is saying, the people of Jesus will have that. Let me end with this. I, this, this drove home to me what it looks like for someone to take this as something real. Um, not a household name, but there's a man who died about uh, less than 20 years ago named James Montgomery Boyce, Jim Boyce, and he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, really bright. I have several books of his in my, in my office. And I was talking with someone recently that, that worked with him. And uh, he worked with Dr. Boyce when he was uh, a fairly new Christian, and he was in seminary, and he was on staff at this church. And so Dr. Boyce received a diagnosis. I can't remember what it was, but it must have been cancer. And he only lived six weeks after his diagnosis, and he died. So a very rapid decline. But he had these work projects that he was working on, probably writing projects. And so the man who told me about this was helping him with those writing projects. And I don't know if this took place in a hospital room or in his bedroom, but here's, here's what happened. He said, so one day we, Dr. Boyce and I, we were together, and he calls him Jim. Jim said to me, I just can't do anymore. And I answered, come on now, let's just do these things, and, and we'll try to make more progress. I'll never forget as he looked me in the eyes and said, no, my work is done. The time has come for me to lay down my labor. And I said, but what about all these matters that you wanted me to get tied up? And he answered, I lay all those loose ends into the hands of Jesus. And I will trust him to work them out. And so I had the great privilege of praying with James Montgomery Boyce as he laid down his life's work. That is real. It's for a man on his deathbed to say, I'm going to rest now. And, to, and as the New Testament says, to fall asleep in Jesus and enter that rest. Strive to enter the true rest that's only through Christ. All right, let's pray. Our Father, for all our talk about wanting to rest, we work and we work and we work. We work our jobs, we work to be fit, we work to be connected, we work to be in control, we work to look put together, we work to make money, we work even on vacation. Lord, we need rest. We need a rest that a nap or sleep or vacation or day off cannot give us. And Father, we ask that if any here have never known what it is to look at the finished work of Jesus and trust Him, that you would give him or her faith right now. Father, for those you've brought to yourself, would you comfort us that we will not always feel like we feel right now. We won't always sin, but we will rest. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.